0: Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the post-festive fixture period edition of the Corner Kick podcast. No Caleb Rhodes today. But I am joined by a man who Boris Johnson cannot lock up for another month of, uh, of national English lockdown. It is Nathan Strauss.
1: Indeed, or, or lockdown, uh, if you will. Uh, and quite relieved, although maybe ethically and morally, there are some some qualms that I have about, you know, the Premier League continuing to be played while the rest of England shuts down. But good news, I guess, from a fan perspective, that that games will still be continuing although coincidentally women's games will not um Mm. only men's games so uh again there are some questions but yes premier league soccer will indeed be continuing for at least another month
0: yes obviously we got the news today that england is back down on a full national lockdown however the premier league will continue and we do have some compelling stuff to discuss today because nathan it looks like we have a title race in our midst for the next upcoming months. Liverpool dropping awful performance after awful performance after awful awful performance, taking two points out of the last nine is probably the worst run in the festive fixture period since Klopp has taken over, as well as Manchester United, (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying this, having one hand on the wheel in the title race, a game in hand on the current Premier League champions and their biggest rivals, Liverpool. We are also going to talk about Frank Lampard's struggles at Chelsea. There are reports trickling out that Chelsea have begun potentially looking for replacements for Lampard after a dismal 3 1 defeat to a resurgent Pep Guardiola's Manchester City at Stamford Bridge. And we also have some positive news for the first time about a team that is three points behind Chelsea right now. All of a sudden, it is Nathan Strauss's Arsenal who have won three on the bounce including a dominant 4-0 win over Sam Allardyce's West Bromwich Albion. Nathan, the festive fixtures have come to an end. What is your impression now that we're going to have some time to breathe following all of these games that have come thick and fast?
1: I think I think first of all it just reinforces my my theory that this is going to end up being the tightest Premier League race in, you know, in years if not, you know, decades. Because uh, you look at the fact that, you know, Liverpool have the league lead right now on goal difference, but United have a game in hand. You've got City who are in fifth place, four gate, four points off the lead, but with two games in hand. You've got Spurs who are one game off the, or one win rather, uh, away from, from second place who are four points off the lead with one game in hand. I think it's going to be um, very, very competitive at the top, which is not something that we're necessarily accustomed to both in the Premier League, but also around Europe. It's kind of refreshing in a way to think that we would have an actual title race and not just a title race, but the race for the top four. I mean, 10th place and 4th place are separated by three points um, and 12th place and 4th place are separated by six points. So I think there's going to be a lot of, of sort of self-cannibalism at the top of the table and two can end up motivating their squads the most will end up coming out on top. And speaking of motivation, Nick, it looked like Liverpool were all out of that today.
0: Yeah, it was a really disappointing. Well, it has been a really disappointing week and a half for Liverpool over the course of the last three games, the course of the Fester fixture period, which is where we really saw them separate themselves from the pack last year in the title race and really start to establish a buffer between themselves and Manchester City. Now we're seeing that they've taken 2 points from 9 games. This is the longest goal drought of the Jurgen Klopp era, which kind of speaks to how, you know, prolific they have been in front of goal under Klopp, but now it looks like it, in the course of, you know, the 1-1 draw to West Brom in which they scored early but then couldn't find the back of the net. I guess really as we have figured out in <laughs> in matches since a horrendous uh, Sam Allardyce, West Brom team. They couldn't beat Newcastle keeper Carl Darlow away. And their struggles continued in this game where they had only one shot on goal, which came in the 75th minute against a well-drilled, but it has to be said, you know, not a amazing how Huddles Southampton today. It's really difficult because Liverpool looked totally drained. And I think when the injuries, all the injuries started to, you know, rain down on Liverpool. We were saying, oh, when are they going to get affected? Are these going to affect them in the immediate term? What we found out now is that all of the injuries and the players subsequently returning back from fitness, we saw Alex Oxley Chamberlain and Tiago start from the off today. And both of them looked well off the pace of the game. In fact, Tiago's uh, giving away of a foul actually instigated the Danny Ings goal the injuries and the lack of match fitness for a really good percentage of the liverpool squad are now resulting in a really poor run of form for the champions and i also would call them profligate in front of goal if they were creating chances and that's the real scary thing is it, i was watching doctor strange the other day and where is where is this going <laughs> there there's this concept in doctor strange called like the mirror dimension which is this like dimension that's adjacent to our dimension, but you can still see everything that's going on, but you can also get trapped in the mirror dimension. So I was wondering, like I was thinking as I was watching this dire performance from Liverpool in which they were just sending wayward crosses into the box, not shooting when they have the angle to shoot, having no real rhythm in the passing game. I was just thinking like after the 7-0 performance away at Sellers Park, if by, by some logic, they got trapped in the mirror dimension in some sort of like... Uh, alternative dimension Liverpool came to our world and has taken their place because that totally this Liverpool team is just unrecognizable in their lack of cutting edge and energy.
1: You have to question a little bit the team selection. I know that there have been injuries and I know that there are people who aren't fully match fit or who might never ever be fully match fit like Alex Oxlade Chamberlain. But starting the center back pairing of Fabinho and Jordan Henderson obviously, you know, two natural uh, midfielders against a, a Southampton team that are, you know, just four points off of the league lead, um, you know, a side that are quite good and, and against a manager who Klopp is incredibly familiar and actually quite friendly with in Ralph Hasenhüttl. I wonder what that says, first of all, about Liverpool's faith or lack thereof in players who have stepped up in big moments like Nat Phillips and Rhys Williams but also a little bit about the transfer market right now and maybe a lack of confidence or ability to sign a player who um, could contribute immediately to the first team squad. Because right now, Liverpool desperately need to sign a centre-back. But at the same time, it's got to be an awfully specific type of player who they're going to sign with the understanding that, obviously, Virgil van Dijk, Joel Matip, Joe Gomez are all probably you know eventually going to be ahead of that person when they are fully fit. So there it's sort of like they have to sign someone who's good enough to contribute right away, but not so good that it might jeopardize, you know, some of their more established players in the long run. Um, And I was pretty surprised. I said this earlier over text. I'm pretty surprised that Liverpool didn't have a signing, um, you know, ready to go on new year's day, just because of the fixture congestion and the injury crises, as well as the declining form of players like Andrew Robertson and especially Trent Alexander Arnold, who, Broke his own Premier League record today with 38 giveaways. No, he
0: didn't. He's his, he, uh, so he is the most in a game against Leicester in 48. But like I said uh, before in our text exchange, in that game in which he set the record for most giveaways in their Premier League match, he also had a goal and two assists. I think Trent, what we're seeing is that he has maintained all of his you know, somewhat lax defensive capabilities in specific moments like we saw when he he overcommitted on one side and allowed Danny Ings to get uh, that shot away. But he's doing it without any of the offensive contribution that we have become so accustomed to seeing from him.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's all exemplified by the fact that uh, his his rating today of 5.3 was his lowest rating in almost an entire calendar year. Um, And of course, when the forwards in front of you aren't taking your chances, obviously your numbers are going to decline. Um, if you're a, a, a fullback who likes to make attacking and supporting runs, it just seemed like, you know, Trent Alexander Arnold, we can single him out, but really the entire Liverpool team, probably stemming from the midfield three didn't really look like they were able to attack today. And just from a purely um, not, not a motivation standpoint, but from a, an energy standpoint, they just didn't look like they were really up to the task. Um, and even with a, a full strength and fully fit front three, you had you know Sadio Mane diving to try and win a penalty. Salah had another pretty bad game. He only had eleven passes and two shots. He was oh, pretty- Salah
0: has been. This is the worst run of form I've ever seen Mohamed Salah in, and he looks like he is playing in a totally different way to the rest of the Liverpool team. Like his touches aren't tidy. He's picking out wrong passes. He's passing into a space where like there's no runner for him. It just it feels like he's almost totally forgotten how to play in this system, which is really, you know, unusual from him. And he was the top goal scorer of in the Premier League in the calendar year of 2020. And it feels like we're a long way away from that sort of form from Salah. And this is coming after him scoring two great goals just, you know, two weeks ago.
1: Again, I think it all stems from the midfield, because when you have one of your midfielders making 17 passes over the course of his time on the pitch, admittedly in 60 minutes, but with a 60% pass completion rating or pass completion percentage, and then combine that with a 60% pass completion percentage of Trent Alexander-Arnold, obviously you can see where the, uh, where the the sort of self-inflicted pain is coming from. And credit to Southampton, a youthful Southampton team, a partially rotated Southampton team with backup goalkeeper Fraser Forrester in goal. Um, Ibrahim Diallo made his second only, the second ever Premier League start, and they lost Genepo in the 30th minute I thought Southampton played quite well. And I don't think they're gonna end up in the top four, but they what what Ralph Hassenhudel has done with that team is very, very encouraging for for Saints fans who were in a relegation battle, you know, two years ago.
0: Yeah, I think it's very rare that you can say a team comprehensively outworked a Klopp Liverpool team, because that's so frequently the hallmark, even when Liverpool don't get the result that they want. But I thought Hassenhuddle's team today, even though they've had trouble finding the back of the net. In their previous three games, this is actually you know the first goal that they've scored in a while. I thought that they comprehensively outworked Liverpool when it was absolutely necessary for them to do so, especially in the second half when it looked like Liverpool were pushing to find that equalizer and they were sending balls into the box at volume. And they really worked extremely hard to relieve some of the pressure, especially some of the subs like uh, Nlundlu and Valerie towards the end, who probably should have scored. uh <laughs> But off of an Allison mistake, but couldn't capitalize. But overall, I thought an impressive performance from Southampton, highlighted by the fact that Hal Huddle was crying at the final whistle.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think part of that is because, you know, he's done a, a really incredible job with his team. And obviously, it's an emotional time. And um, obviously, it's his, I believe it's his first victory over Jurgen Klopp in the Premier League.
0: Well, also, he's had like a really difficult week and a half-ish of of his wife potentially testing positive for COVID. He had to miss the last game. He wasn't able to coach from the touchline. He had to stay at home, and he was finally able to return to the touchline for this game, and getting this particular result must have felt really good for him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you look at it, they had a pretty tough run of fixtures. They had Arsenal, City, away, uh, Fulham, Southampton, and Liverpool, and the only game in which they failed to pick up some sort of points was against City. Unfortunately for Liverpool, an FA Cup game now four days away, despite the fact that they will then have um, eight days or nine days rather to prepare for maybe the game of the season against title challengers United.
0: The segue into Liverpool is probably new. At first, we had Tottenham, then we had Chelsea, now we have Manchester United have firmly entered the title contendership picture. Nathan, this is a man in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who we've heavily criticized on this show. However, they are starting to play in a way following a 2-1 home win to Aston Villa and a 1-0 win at home to Wolverhampton Wanderers in the dying embers of that game, a Marcus Rashford goal in the 93rd minute. They are starting to find and grind out wins in a way in which we've seen title contenders do in the past. Is there any truth to these title title contendership claims for Manchester United? And should teams like Manchester city and Liverpool be concerned that all team are starting to show that kind of mentality?
1: No. Uh, I mean, they haven't lost in the league since Arsenal beat them on November 1st, which is a weird way to preface this statement. But I, I think that this United team is very similar to the Spurs team that were title contenders for two consecutive seasons under Pochettino and ended up finishing what sec- uh, third and then second. And I just don't think that Olegan or Solskjaer has the managerial noose to lead this team to a championship. I think that... Were it not for the simply insane ability of Bruno Fernandes, um, this team would be, you know, in eighth or ninth place. And I just can't shake the feeling that there are internal power battles and off off the pitch drama, you know, involving Paul Pogba and whether or not he will stay or go. Donny Van de Beek, who they signed in the summer, who has barely been able to get a minute for them. I just feel like this team is one resounding blowout loss to a team like Liverpool in two weeks or, you know, a bad loss to Watford on Saturday before all of this, uh, this form that they've built up catches up to them. To, to In a manner of speaking. And I mean, they have a worse goal difference than all of the other teams in the top five and all but two of the other teams in the top nine. And I just I, I still just don't have faith in them whatsoever, even if their form has continued to prove me wrong.
0: Yeah, I'll play devil's advocate, no pun intended, for a second here. And it kind of explained why I am a little worried about this Manchester United team, especially as we're seeing... Liverpool drop in form, Chelsea drop in form, Spurs, I know they beat Leeds resoundingly this weekend, but we've also seen them drop in form as well. And all United have to do is be the best of the rest and collect results. And there is a sense of, well, they don't play well for the entirety of 90 minutes, but they do get a win in the end. And how long long can they sustain that sort of run where they're not playing particularly great for the entirety of matches? I think that is a compelling argument, but also you make the point about, um, you know, maybe these off the field issues with Paul Pogba and Donny van de Beek might creep up towards the end of the season. That is true. But for now, we saw against Aston Villa, you know, a team that works incredibly hard on and off the ball uh, that Paul Pogba had to put in probably, I would say, his best performance of the season in a Manchester United shirt. Uh, it was a real workmanlike performance from Pogba. He probably should have had one or two goals. He his range of passing was on point in that game. His work off the ball was on point in that game. I thought his work defensively was pretty good as well. And Bruno Fernandes is someone who, or if I didn't feel like he needed to rest him, he would play every he would want to play every single minute of the campaign. He just looks that dedicated. He's been a real catalyst of harmony in this Manchester United team, both on the field and off the field, and just the way that like you've heard stories about when he walked through the door at Old Trafford, the level of training increased. He's a real vocal leader on the pitch in a way that Harry Maguire isn't. So I think they are starting to show components of a team that could contend for the Premier League. But yeah, like you said, Nathan, I think there are still some deficiencies in this team. I think they're defending is still a cause for concern if you're a Manchester United fan. Eric Bailly had a phenomenal, he's had a, a phenomenal festive fixture period capped off by that amazing performance against Aston Villa. But we know that Bailly is a streaky player. Same with Maguire and same with Lindelof. So who really knows if that defense will be able to hold?
1: I know that there's this narrative of you know United getting decisions and getting good luck in, in, in certain places and to a certain extent the last two wins have been full of that you know Rashford's goal that won that won the game um, against Wolves took a huge deflection off of uh, off of Seiss I believe and Villa could easily have tied or won that game they had 13 shots on goal um, and some were it not for some huge blocks and a really bad miss from Tyrone Mings and a good game from David De Gea um, you know, I think the narrative, if, if they lose one of these games or if they draw both of them is very different. Um, and so I wonder if there's going to be some sort of, uh, regression in terms of their luck anytime soon, especially as they have a busier stretch over the next four weeks.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I th- I also think that this is the nature of this season somewhat, you know, Liverpool have stayed at the top for the most part. However, they've faltered at certain periods, but A new challenger has emerged, kind of like Street Fighter.
1: I was was just just (laughs) going to do the
0: voice. Yeah, a new new fighter has emerged. Challenger. (sighs) Exactly. Every few weeks or so. You know, first we had Tottenham. Then we had Frank Lampard's Chelsea, who we're about to come on to. And then now I think Manchester United are having their time in the sun. And the real proving point for them will be to see if they can go to Anfield on January the 17th and get a result.
1: Yeah, and obviously that'll be a huge game. I also, I misspoke. They had 13, pardon me, they had 15 shots in the game, not on goal, um, did Villa. I think the point still stands. United are going to have a big test in terms of squad rotation. And obviously their biggest test of all will be coming up against a fully rested Liverpool side. But shall we jump across Manchester and talk for a minute about what City did to Chelsea the other day? Because I think it really validated. It scratched an itch in all of us at Corner Kick, I
0: will say that I was very happy that this game took place on a Sunday. Because...
1: <laughs> I know it's annoying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because, Nathan, on the seventh day, as all of us are resting, watching Premier League soccer, the church doors flung wide open, the masses congregated in, socially distanced, of course, As we all witnessed, Frank Lampard's Chelsea be torn apart over the course of 35 minutes on their own patch to a Pep Guardiola strikerless setup in the form of Manchester City. It was 3 1 at the end. It could have been much, much more for the citizens. They could have had four, five, or even six. Nathan, we're going to come on to Man City because I think it's finally time that we have a conversation about how good they've been this season, flying somewhat under the radar. However, you know, there are statement victories. There are also statement defeats. I think this has to be a statement defeat and the worst period of Frank Lampard's 10 years Chelsea manager so far.
1: Yeah. And not to mention the fact that it came against a Man City side that have players missing due to COVID. Um You know, this wasn't necessarily a full strength city side, um, whatsoever. And it was a a Chelsea side that was full strength. You know, they had Ziyech back. They played Timo Werner up top, which is where we've been advocating for him to be played.
0: No, on the face of it, it looked like Frank Lampard had picked the right team.
1: Oh yeah. He picked the right team. Absolutely. But he got thoroughly outcoached. And I mean, city were tearing apart Chelsea as if Chelsea were Burnley, um, you know, the side that have shipped an average, I think, of 4.75 goals in their last eight matchups with City. So they looked legitimately terrible Um, and they were fortunate to get that one goal back because I think on the surface, 3-1 feels a lot better than 3-0. But aside from Christian Pulisic, who I thought had a, a very good game, City just totally, despite being outpossessed by Chelsea, 55-45, to which is rare for a Pep Guardiola team, City completely dominated. It seemed like they were going to score every time they brought the ball at the pitch. Kevin De Bruyne, as a sort of... I don't know if you would call him a center forward or a, a number nine, almost, um, worked a lot better than Farron Torres or Raheem Sterling, which we is what we thought might have happened when we saw the lineup. Um, Gundogan scored a very Gundogan-esque goal. And, it was
0: a signature move. It's the goal that he always scores, that it, little turn and shoot.
1: Exactly, and, and Phil Foden continues to produce whenever he gets the minutes despite uh, murmurs from his agent that he is getting unsettled by the lack of playing time so all in all you know a weekend full of positives for City who also got Aguero back as he made a late substitute cameo um, and now this, this City team you know they have two games in hand and if they win both of those they will be two points clear so huge victory for Pep and a, a bad run amongst a spell of bad run, a spell of bad results rather for Frank Lampard.
0: Yeah, I think we'll we'll talk about City first, I guess. I think we, it has been to their benefit that we have overlooked them somewhat in the title conversation, just by the sheer fact that they have games in hand to play. But Pep Guardiola has completely solved their defensive deficiencies that have plagued them for, you know, over a year at this point. Ruben Dias and a John Stones resurgence that everyone saw coming, I'm sure, uh, has really propelled them to look like probably the most sturdy side defensively in the Premier League. Certainly, statistics will say that is true. They've also been crying out for leadership. I think John Stones gives them some of that as well. He looked like an extremely vocal component of the Man City team in that win over Chelsea. Zhao Cancelo, the tactical flexibility that Pep has employed in deploying him essentially all over the pitch. You know, he was popping up on the right against Newcastle. He popped up on the left and the right in this game. He can play seemingly any position Guardiola asks him to play in that sort of box defense that he seems to be employing this 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 season. And we'll get on to Chelsea because I think, like you said, Nathan, Frank Lampard did pick the right team. You know, Ziyech was back from his injury uh, player that I think they have sorely missed going forward. However, I just think that they're so poorly coached off the ball and they have no identity on the ball anymore. And I don't know whether or not that's like a lack of confidence in the fact that Timo Werner can't get firing and he looks like he can't even properly lead the line of this team. Also, you know, obviously Kai Havertz left on the bench. Ben Shulwell had a poor game. Thiago Silva had a poor game. And these are four players who were Chelsea's marquee signings in the summer. And there is clear regression going on here. Look, they've
1: picked up four points of their last 18, including a terrible loss against Arsenal, an Arsenal team that hadn't won in almost two months, a 2-1 loss to Wolves, a 1-0 loss to an incredibly heavily injured Everton side, and a draw with Villa that they were fortunate to get a point out of. I think if it were any other club, you know, if, if you're a club in the bottom, bottom half of the table, and your manager is picking up four points from 14, or pardon me, four points from 18, that's when you begin to have the serious question about whether or not to give him the sack. And we did start seeing the Lampard out hashtag on Twitter this weekend, um, as many, many other soccer fans from around the world finally heard the gospel that we've been preaching for many months now. And I think your point about them not being well coached enough is a testament to a lot of the results that we saw from them earlier this year when they went on that really good run of games and clean sheets after Edouard Mendy was brought into the team and they let, you know, Olivier Giroud and Co pull the strings. I get no sense when I watch this Chelsea team that they have specific tactical instructions. And even in the worst of nights under Mikel Arteta in that two-month period without a win, I still thought that, like, there was a plan. Even though the plan was bad, there was still clearly a plan and players were being coached accordingly.
0: Right, right. And I completely agree with you, Nathan. There's, yeah. I'll just cut in and I'll let you continue. But there was a period in this game, that there was there was a sp- specific point uh, in the first half where I was like, oh, this Chelsea team has no idea like what to do going forward and they have no real instructions. And it was when they were 3-0 down, right? And they really needed to do something. And Kristen Pulisic was you know, flying up the left wing and his head was on a swivel looking for someone to combo off of so he could like get into the box and potentially have a shot. And Ben Shilwell, unmarked, no one in front of him, he didn't know whether or not to go forward and help Pulisic or he didn't know whether or not to, to stay back and potentially uh, defend another breakaway. So it was those moments of hesitation where you can kind of see that Chelsea lack a real any sort of tactical identity on the ball and off the ball.
1: And I mean, when it works, it works. Like when you have a team that's in form with good chemistry, um, you know, maybe you can get some a good run of results just based on, um, you know, pure ability. But you know, and actually, frankly, Pep Guardiola's team is the complete antithesis of that. You know, where every position is so highly drilled and every player is so tactically astute, um, and clearly tactics plus talent won out over just talent uh this weekend and the, the task for chelsea does not appear to be getting any easier um because we know lampard is an incredibly defensive guy they've got what should be a very winnable game against Morecambe in the fa cup then they've got fulham and Leicester, um and i have to think that if they can't win if they lose to, to fulham or drop points there then it'll be serious but i would imagine The Chelsea hierarchy are going to let him coach through the first round of the Champions League knockout stages against Atletico Madrid. Um, But it wouldn't surprise me if at that point, when Chelsea will have also had to face teams like Everton and United for a second time, as well as Spurs, if at that point they'll have a clearer picture of whether or not Lampard is the guy they want.
0: Yeah, and I think this is the real worrying thing if you're Lampard. It's twofold. One, you have no real experience to draw from in these moments. You know, Jurgen Klopp loses a game. He has a vast wealth of experience to draw from for how to get Liverpool back into form. Same with Pep Guardiola. You know, same for Mikel Arteta, to a certain extent, who has worked under Pep Guardiola in a time when Manchester City weren't on top of things. So he has, you know, that sort of experience to to try and experiment with things and tweak things tactically to try and get Arsenal back on top because he has experience as an assistant coach. Lampard has none of that experience to draw from. And the other thing is, is that I think when he was brought into Chelsea, he was brought in, in a period of uncertainty. They had a transfer ban and he had to rely on youth from the academy And he had to give players a chance. He had to put his belief behind people like Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, Reese James. Now that that mercenary culture has cropped up again at Chelsea with the likes of, you know, Thiago Silva, Timo Werner, who look directionless. Lampard is at a real crossroads of whether or not to put his faith in the players that he recruited for a king's ransom or stick with that homegrown culture that led him to the Champions League last season. That's a real tough place to be in for a coach that's so inexperienced.
1: And not just the homegrown players, but in particular, someone like Olivier Giroud, who could potentially be leaving on a free and who's actually free to negotiate with other teams as of right now, but someone who has been instrumental in securing them victories both in the Champions League and the League, uh, both in the Champions League and the Premier League, rather, um, over the course of this season. So he's really backed himself into a corner and you get the sense that no, if, if he tries something and fails, no matter what he tries, if he fails, there's going to be a very clear narrative. You know, we've seen a lot of managers, especially Mikel Arteta, undergo heavy, heavy criticism from the English press. And I guess it makes sense, as I said last on our last episode, that it would take a little bit while longer for Lampard to come under the same kind of scrutiny. But when you look at his e- efficacy with, with transfer funds and this poor run of form, Um, I get the feeling that his time is almost up, Um, especially under a Chelsea management system that can be incredibly, incredibly ruthless.
0: Right. The style that Chelsea play is incredibly important to Abramovich as well. We know this to be true. Like even under Mourinho, once Mourinho got super ultra defensive and he was conceding results, that was when Abramovich gave him the sack, not once, but twice. And he's Chelsea's probably most prolific ever coach.
1: But do we want to jump across London now and talk about the team that has capitalized first on on Frank Lampard's inadequacy, but then um, on the resurgence of of some young players in Arsenal? Absolutely.
0: I think this is, you know, West Brom, they are not the strongest of teams. It was Uh, not the best of atmospheres. You know, the snow is coming down at the Hawthorns. It looked like it didn't certainly didn't face Kieran Tierney, who oh went out in uh in, in, in like no snow gear at all, both to warm up and to play. Meanwhile, Ainsley Maitland, Ainsley Maitland-Niles came on with a uh, what seemed to look like pajamas, <laughs> full,
1: like full like long underwear, long sleeve shirt underneath the kit and everything. But
0: Nathan, this is the feel good arsenal that we were hoping Mikel Arteta would unearth, you know, following that disastrous run of form. You know, put a little bit more faith in players like Emil Smith-Rowe, who is really, I think, galvanized players like Bukayo Saka and Alexander Lacazette, who finally has both, who finally have another willing runner in that attack. Give the license for Kieran Tierney to finally play a little bit higher up. He's an incredibly technically gifted player, and he has developed an attacking sensibility from his time at Celtic, where he was actually a pretty prolific goal scorer for that team. So he knows what he's doing going forward. By simplifying things and by going with some less established names, Arsenal are really starting to see a real harmonious side to their game that we haven't felt in a really long time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. West Brom are really, really shit and are almost certainly going to go down. But on the other hand, this is a West Brom team that managed to pick up one of their eight points all season against Liverpool. That's just past week and against city and against city. So again, it's like there was totally a narrative that could have happened going into this game where you come out of this game and it ends up in like a nil nil or a one one draw. And you're like, well, crap, you know, it was a a Sam Allardyce team. They sat back, they counted effectively, but no, Um, aside from one goal that ended up getting called back from for offsides, a clear offsides. Arsenal really dominated this match from start to finish. And yes, maybe the conditions played a little part in it. It did not look like it was a fun match experience for anyone aside from the White Walker himself, Kieran Tierney. Arsenal played and scored two of the best goals that I've seen this season. That goal from Kieran Tierney had me like legitimately like on my feet. I have not seen an Arsenal defender ever score a goal uh, in that manner. He, you know, knocks the ball past the fullback, goes the other side of him, cuts it onto his weak foot, and curls it. Um, past Sam Johnston, who played pretty well despite giving up the four goals. Um, and then the second goal was what I would consider a, a a classic Arsenal goal full of you know the one-touch passes and the movement and the overlaps and leading to a Bukayo Saka tap-in. I think this game was positive. You know, It's now three wins on the bounce for Arsenal after a, a really dreadful eight-match run. Um, and there are some really winnable games coming up too um, with an FA Cup tie against Newcastle. And then games against Palace and Newcastle, again in the league, both at home. And, you know, we've gone from being a potential, you know, a dark horse relegation candidate to being three points away from overtaking teams like Chelsea and Villa, who I would say have been consistently better than Arsenal this year.
0: Yeah, and I think not to, n- not to bring this back to Chelsea, but this is also something that could probably give Frank Lampard a little bit of solace is that all it takes in, in just the way that the Premier League is is set up right now and the fact that results are so inconsistent from month to month is that all, all it really takes to get the fans back on your side and to get the press off your back is just to grit and grind, put your nose to the grindstone, all those platitudes of working really hard and try and come up with one or two performances that can get you on a run again. And that's exactly what Arsenal have done and that have culminated in this performance that I think just screamed confidence, right? This was a pure confidence driven performance.
1: Yeah. I think that was one of the things that was so encouraging is that Arsenal came out and attacked and dominated from the start of the game. And that's a kind of, they played with a kind of swagger that we really, that I really haven't seen from Arsenal since either opening day versus Fulham or when playing, you know, basically the U23s in the Europa League. And yeah, there are still some selection questions like, you know, our best center back, Gabriel Magalhaes, has been out of the side because of COVID restrictions. You know, does he? Does Arteta give him his place back over someone like Pablo Marie, who has been solid um, in the last three games, if unspectacular? Obviously, you've got Yang, who's just coming back from injury,
0: and, and the also, big one, Thomas big Partey. One, Thomas
1: Partey is back in training now. I can only imagine that this this same formation, this four two three one with Smith Rowe and Saka. Um, will only be made better either by replacing someone like Xhaka with Party or Ceballos. I don't think you can go wrong with either of those. Um, but in particular, Bukayo Saka playing as a right winger, I think we've been, Arsenal have been uh, quite poor from that flank and they have re- over-relied on, on someone like Kieran Tierney made, to make attacking runs on the left-hand side, but putting a left footer like Saka on the right is what enabled Arsenal to get by City in the FA Cup. It's also what uh, they did in the uh, what Arteta did in the community shield, and it's paid dividends so far. You know, it's it, that playing finding Emile Smith Rowe and sort of giving him the confidence and ability to play in the first team saves Arsenal a lot of, of hassle in the transfer market. Um, because now, instead of looking at, you know, maybe paying over the odds for someone like Emi Bendia or loaning in someone less reliable, perhaps like Isco, they Jim now Brown. have. Right, or or someone like Julian Brandt who would cost twenty five, you know, twenty five million. It just doesn't seem worth it when you have you know an Academy graduate um, who's twenty years old, who's in good form, who might not end up having as high a ceiling. Someone who can do the job and is already you know well drilled in the system. All in all, I'm pretty encouraged right now, and if we can get you know some more consecutive wins, there's no reason why um, this Arsenal team couldn't sneak back into the conversation, maybe for you know, a a top six finish.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing I'm going to say to all Arsenal supporters. Is your team going to go on a bad run of form again this season? Probably. You know, that is the nature of this season, and we know that Arsenal, you know, aren't the most gifted team personnel-wise. And confidence, you know, while we would like it to be permanent, it just isn't. You know, that's a fact of life. The thing that, you know, fans of Arsenal... And the players themselves need to realize is that, you know, they're not the complete article yet. They're far from it. However, if they can play with a little bit of confidence, coupled with, you know, the workmanlike mentality that they've displayed over their previous three performances, then like you said, I think they can definitely get somewhere this season. However, I'm also a little bit skeptical that they'll be able to challenge for those European places, uh, just given the way that this season has gone and that teams are looking inconsistent in their form.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And um, obviously getting party back will be a, a huge boost. Um, and this is a team that could very well be poised to make a long run in the Europa League as well. Um, but right now, it certainly seems like the dog days are over. Finally, Arsenal played and uh, played what I would call fun soccer. Even when we went down to 10 men, uh, by down to 10 men, I mean bringing Willian on. We still looked like we were really uh, in the game.
0: Willian who and- had a shot on target.
1: Finally, a shot on target. Only what three and a half months after his last
0: one, so so things are really turning. That's how you know things exactly. are really turning around at the Emirates. Anyways, I want to end with uh I, I know something that you, I think, quite quietly in our text conversations, have been wanting to have a discussion about, and I'll let I'll I'll let you get it off your chest because I, I I think I know it's been I, I'm far away from you right now, Nathan. We're recording this virtually, obviously. But I know that this has been bothering you. What is your take on the recent uh, surge in stories that we've seen about players in the Premier League breaking COVID protocols and having like all sorts of New Year's Eve parties, uh, family functions, or um, as Benjamin Mendy put it, inviting over, quote unquote, big bum Latinas to enjoy New Year's Eve with him?
1: It's, oh my God, it's so infuriating. And this actually kind of brings the pod full circle because obviously we opened up by talking about how the Premier League has been granted, um, you know, elite status by Boris Johnson and therefore can continue playing despite the, the ongoing lockdown. It really makes me think that there would certainly be grounds for a less conservative government to shut them down. And you look at the fact that we've already seen games getting postponed and canceled in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, there have been outbreaks at Fulham and City at this point. Uh, anywhere else that I'm forgetting?
0: Newcastle.
1: And Newcastle, right. They were, I guess, the first um, back maybe a month and a half ago. Um, it really, it sort of brings up this question again about like, what do sports mean to society? you know, what is the role of an athlete in today's society, but especially in the age of social media and Twitter, how hard would it be to be an elite athlete, to be someone like Kyle Walker or Ben Mendy and say like, okay, you know what, if we're going to be having these parties, why don't we have like a no phones rule, right? Like, why don't we have like a no picture taking rule? Because it's so easy for these people to just not to either not have the parties at all, like the rest of the nation is doing or to just hide their privilege a little bit better. Like it's really just infuriating. And I totally wouldn't be averse to seeing, um, you know, stricter punishments handed out to these players aside from like the, the, COVID protocol stuff. But this also comes from the top down. I mean, when you have guys like, like Pep Guardiola who continues his, his descent into heal dumb by saying, Oh, you know what? Actually, we should let these players be people and forget that like they get lonely too. I don't give a shit. Like, I haven't been able to like, you know, not I, but plenty of plenty, plenty of British people haven't been able to like see their family or their friends. And, you know, my parents haven't been able to, you know, hug their parents and whatnot for, for the last almost a year now. It's like, like grow up, right? Jesus.
0: Yeah, the Pep Guardiola comments following the Chelsea game when he said that people who criticize Benjamin Mendy should look in the mirror, quote-unquote, was extremely condescending. And yeah, it really just uh, continues his descent into Emperor Palpatine territory, especially as he continues to wear that silly uh, oversized coat on the touchline. The one that really rubbed me the wrong way was, and I don't know if you read this one, Nathan, was when Mourinho was talking about uh, Sergio Reguillon being at that party with Eric Lamella and um, Giovanni Lichelso uh, where they had like friends and family and looked like a super spreader extraordinaire event. Mourinho um, had bought Reguillon a really expensive Portuguese <laughs> pork dinner. <laughs> I did see that. <laughs> because Reguion told him that he would be spending New Year's alone. Instead, he went, uh, totally lied to his manager took the pork dinner anyways and went to Eric Lamella's party like first of all like this guy is your boss don't lie to your boss and if don't put your teammates at risk like that like first of all you're being deceitful and second of all you're being reckless and dangerous
1: and, and third like, he, all, he was wearing jean shorts and like an Abercrombie and Fitch t-shirt clearly he didn't get the the fancy dress memo either
0: There's no there seems to be like a lack of understanding from some of these Premier League players that like they're in an extremely privileged position and they're probably one of the only industries in the next month that is going to be fully operational and not really affected by the harsh realities of the outside world right now. And
1: to see them get not praised, but defended for their actions just adds insult to injury. And yeah, it's just it's very, very frustrating
0: Yeah. And like, I don't mean to, you know, the NFL has a bevy of issues. However, we have seen this season that they've taken measures like fining coaches for not wearing masks or taking draft picks away for not wearing masks or fining players for breaching COVID protocol. And I would be open to the same kind of financial and game time punishments in the Premier League if if stuff like this continues to trickle out. We've
1: been wanting, or I certainly have been wanting, some sort of you know exercise of authority, so to speak, from either FIFA or the FA, um, but they seem to be too busy uh, condemning a Uruguayan <laughs> man for for using Uruguayan vernacular, um, then dealing with a, a national public health crisis. So
0: oh, poor Cavani. Um, I,
1: I you know I strongly doubt that they have the cojones. You can Google that one, FA, um, the cojones to do such a thing.
0: All right. Well, I think that's going to bring our show to an end and also bring an end to the Premier League festive fixture period. Caleb Rhodes will be back towards the end of the week to discuss, you know, some maybe more broader European topics. We'll get back into La Liga, the Bundesliga and Serie A as they resume play as well. But until then, I've been Nick Cavindon, Nathan Strauss, and we will see you all next time.